Welcome to So Hot Right Now. I'm Lucy Siegel. And I'm Tom Mustill. For some reason, when discussing the planetary crisis, we've often found it really difficult to get the language right. That's both when you're talking about nature and climate, and also when you're describing yourself. So this week on So Hot Right Now, we're going to be talking about words. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, last week was pretty amazing with Ellie Goulding and Todd Krim uh, talking about sticking your head above the parapet and using your celebrity and your fame to get people to look at big, important issues like nature and climate. Wasn't that an incredible experience? Yeah. I mean, like the bravery, that's what struck me. Like you don't have to, you know, it's pretty hard to make it big. But when you have a lot of people just think that's enough. And it was just really impressive hearing Ellie talking about just even though she'd lose followers and get flack, um, you know, just talking about what she believes in. And it was, you could kind of see in some of the comments since, you know, a bit of light trolling from um, some independent scientists with their own opinions about climate change that seemed to be a bit different from the consensus. <laughs> what, are you, what are you saying here? Well, I don't know. I mean, my main <laughs> feeling is that, you know, you're always going to have a healthy debate about, the, about climate science. But when some of the more outre ones are from guys called Tom, it gets me down. Guys, you know, us Toms have got to come and, you know, hold ourselves to a higher standard. Sort it out. Don't give the Toms a bad name. You know what I noticed as well, though, that there was a lot of really good reaction and a lot of you know, people that are climate activism around climate activism uh, around climate activism actually posting, Ellie, good on you. I now follow you. Yeah. So maybe she gained, maybe she gained followers. Yeah, totally. So why are we, why are we focusing on words? Well, with the words we choose, there are many traps to fall into. If language is too comfortable, it can minimise the threat and need for action. It can sometimes be downright dismissive or it can be too technical, forgetting that we actually respond to emotion or it can be too emotional and not precise enough. Or it can be really boring. Part of the aim of communication is surely to entertain and to capture the attention of our fellow humans. And no one wants to be a climate bore. They do not. Or, but the flip side is, what if you oversell, or overreach, you become a hype, what? A hype beast. Lucy, you wrote this. <laughs> Lucy gave me these words. Becoming a hype beast for technological fixes that are not silver bullets. I thought you'd like that. I thought you'd like that. I, uh, yeah, I mean, you see that you see how difficult language is. This is just to illustrate this point. It's a linguistic minefield, Tom. Can we harness the power of language to focus minds on an urgent global issue? Where's the opportunity? Or rather, we know that we have to use language. We are in this really terrifying, intense situation with the breakdown of many of our natural systems, big threats to the natural world and the loss of biodiversity, changes to our climate. We have to describe this, and we have to describe it in a way that gets across the urgency of it, that doesn't turn people away, that doesn't overstate it, but that also doesn't minimise it. 
Um, different people react to different words. So you have to temper your words to your audience. It's a really complex area. But for a long time, we've just used the same words for pretty much everything, like climate change for everything that's going on with our climate and our atmosphere. Um, so we wanted to speak to two experts. One is Damien Carrington. He's the environment editor of The Guardian. And the second is Gillian Burke, who's a biologist and natural history presenter on the BBC. They both make big and nuanced decisions on the language they use and the perspectives they take every day. We found it fascinating, and we hope that you do so too. First up is Damien. Way back in January, in what feels like a different world, this was one of the first subjects we thought about for So Hot Right Now, and pre-lockdown, we spoke to Damien Carrington. Now, the reason we were so keen is that in May 2019, The Guardian announced changes to climate language and embedded those changes in its style guide. So we were fascinated to understand the thinking behind these changes. How did staff make that call? Damien, thank you so much for doing So Hot right now. What do you think of our title, by the way, as we're talking about language? It's hot. Yes, <laughs> correct answer. Correct answer. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. The Guardian, it was in October, wasn't it, announced these six new changes, these pivotal changes to climate language. Had they been a long time coming? Had you been thinking about them for ages and wanting to do this? Yeah, definitely. For a while, it was actually in May um, that we made those changes to the style guide, and um, there had been a you know, series of discussions um, over, you know, probably the year before. I mean, a few people have been thinking about it longer than that, like George Monbiot, who's one of the columnists at the Guardian. Um, but it sort of came to a head um, uh, in in May last year after um, a couple of you know, big meetings uh, chaired by the editor in chief, Catherine Viner. And uh, as a result of those, she decided that uh, it was time to make the changes. Were you at those meetings? I was. So, did, what did people do? Shout out things that they didn't like? Like, how? What was the process? So, what happened was that um, you know uh, George and myself and some others, or in fact, lots of people. That, you know, we're fortunate to have a, a good number of uh, environment journalists and editors at the, the Guardian had put together a kind of long list of, of things that we didn't think uh, or phrases that we didn't think properly represented what was going on in the world and, and then suggested alternatives and so we had a you know, good discussion um, about the, the, the merits and demerits of uh, all the various options. So what were the phrases that we were using that were problematic and what sort of phrases were you guys suggesting? Well, I mean, we'll talk about the ones that uh, made it out of the uh, out of the meeting. But uh, climate change, as uh, Catherine said in the story I wrote about it at the time, was you know, sounds change can be good. It sounds quite mild and gentle and perhaps gradual. Whereas um, you have to look at the um, uh, graph of uh, temperature rises in the last uh, couple of thousand years, say, to see how uh, drastically uh, things are changing. And so. Uh, you know, climate crisis, climate emergency, climate breakdown, all of which are, um, you know, suggested phrases uh, now in our style book seem to um, represent not just um, the urgency and the rapidity of what was happening, but also the implications uh, for the world. The, the sort of word emergency and crisis encompasses, you know, what it means for um, civilization, for, for, for humanity, but also for uh, the living world um, that we share the planet with. 
So climate sceptic, that got the old heave-ho as well. That's been replaced with climate science denier or climate denier. That's right, yeah. I think um, it's fair to say that there are a, a vanishingly small number of good faith climate sceptics, if we can uh, put it that way. And I think um, it's pretty clear that most of those um, you know, trying to make arguments against the reality of climate change or the seriousness of it or the urgency for action are doing so for you know, commercial or, or, or ideological reasons. And uh, it seems pretty fair to call that out. So it's, it's not global warming, it's global heating, and greenhouse gas emissions is preferred to carbon emissions or carbon dioxide emissions. This one, I think this is, a, you, you'll like this one, Tom. Well, presumably mm-hmm. you do. So you now at The Guardian use wildlife, not biodiversity. Yeah, well, it's, it seems more resonant to me. I mean, I've never really looked at nature and thought, hmm, biodiversity. <laughs> but like, I, I think a lot of these things it's about the emotional connection you make with those words as well right yeah i agree i mean i think uh, you know reported um for, for quite a while now about the annihilation of wildlife because i think that's you know pretty fair word to use in mm. terms of what's happening around the world because of the destruction of forests and other natural places and um biodiversity of course is um you know, the word um, coined by E.O. Wilson, I think, and, and, and serves a great purpose. Yes. Um, but it, um, it, it, it's quite technical and um, it doesn't have any kind of warmth or, you know, for most people, won't have any resonance at all. So um, wildlife, I think, captures that uh, to some degree. Totally. I'm, I'm a biologist by background and I read E.O. Wilson's The Diversity of Life and still biodiversity never really kind of I knew what it, I, I could use it in science to explain things, but when I spoke to people outside of science, it wasn't a word that really lit up anything in their heads. And if you haven't read E.O. Wilson, because I haven't, but I know that he's a great biologist who studied ants a lot. Yeah, and also... Yeah, no, but the, I mean, the, the, um, the, the, the paper or the, the short article that um, Tom refers to, I actually read it fairly recently, and um, it's pretty short, easy to find, and it's... Um, really stunning i think it's uh, from the 80s if i remember rightly um and it's definitely worth a read but um totally for all yeah. you wildlife nerds out there i'll stick that on my twitter later um, you've mentioned emotion you've referred to things as being stunning in, these are all kind of very evocative we're, we're having a, a quite emotional conversation about something that was previously uh very dry and clear-cut has there been a change in the style of writing an opening up on the environment desk. I don't think so, actually, Lucy. I think, um, you know, um, emotion, of course, is um, pretty central to most people's lives. We feel them every day. Um, but that, that wasn't really the purpose of the uh, change of language. The, the idea was to um, describe more accurately, really, um, what's happening in the world. So to take, for example, um, uh, global heating, you know, uh, Professor Richard Betts at the uh, Met Office um, has said that that's a better term than global warming um, because it describes the physical process better. That's uh, one example. And I think it's worth pointing out that uh, you know, none of those previous terms have been banned. It's just that we prefer um, the other one. So if it turns out that biodiversity um, you know, in its technical meaning is the right word, we'll, we'll still use that. Mm-hmm. And do, have you found that your audiences and readers have responded um, to these changes? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's fair to say, you know, it's not like we were the first people to to use these things. Antonio Guterres is the Secretary General of the United Nations, has used the phrase climate change, and uh, Greta Thunberg was using climate emergency before we made these changes. 
overwhelming in a way, actually, that uh, people appreciated. But even more so, perhaps, um, you know, I, I got contacted by newspapers, radio stations, uh, big and small from all over the world, asking to find out more about it and what was going on. So definitely felt like it, it sort of uh, had some impact in the world. I don't know if you noticed this week, the, the Guardian um, bosses decided that uh, the paper and website won't accept fossil fuel advertising um, anymore. That's from fossil fuel extraction companies. Um, I did notice that. I I hadn't realised that they still did take that advertising. Um, I don't know, actually, um, how many um, ads were taken, say, in our year or two, um, but I'm sure there were some. Um, And, uh, you know, we'll have um, some financial impact on the Guardian's operations. I think it was uh, about, like, 1% or something like that, I think I read. So the fossil fuel announcement that you're not taking that, that advertising, has that raised the question for a lot of people about aviation? So you are still taking airline adverts. And I know from, you know, being a Guardian contributor for a long time that I used to get a lot of pushback on that. It's almost like when you do one thing, then it just alerts people to the fact that you're not doing everything. So, yeah, Anna Bateson, who's the acting um, chief executive of uh, Guardian News and Media, alludes to that in the um, blog that she wrote explaining the decision to um, stop fossil fuel extraction. Uh, company advertisements and um, certainly you know there's been discussion and people do get in touch with us about uh, aviation long-haul flights even cars you know if they're not uh, particularly um, fuel efficient and and that kind of advertising um, at the present moment I mean you know me and the environment team weren't involved in this commercial decision so um, I can't say more than that but uh, you know discussions have been had obviously about uh, that type of advertising also internally and who knows maybe that'll change in the future but right now um, you know fossil fuel extraction companies like oil and gas and coal companies those are the ones that uh, these advertisements the Guardian is no longer taking. Because there is a there is a Swedish newspaper that stopped taking uh, aviation uh, airline adverts I think there is one there is a precedent now. Right okay well we'll we'll, uh, we'll see if we'll follow above my pay grade. If you could feed that back, thanks, Damien. Yeah, and, <laughs> that will do. But also for now, like just a little high five for that. I think that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, personally, like it to is. stop taking loads of money from oil and gas. Uh, I can't imagine that many major newspapers in the UK have taken that step so far. Yeah, so also well, well done. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think you said. I mean, no, no major media, international media group has uh, done it so far. But it's interesting in the in the sort of even in the day after I saw. Um, 350.org, a campaigning organisation, have started a campaign to get Reuters to try and follow suit. Mm. And um, Friends of the Earth Europe are trying to get Politico um, to do the same. So, again, it seems to have um, sparked something. I think it's, this is really interesting, too, because uh, obviously we report um, uh, on the climate and we can report on divestment. But media is an enormous industry and it has an enormous footprint and it has an enormous amount of money running through it. So with decisions that we make as broadcasters as well, we can have a big impact. So, Damien, how hard is it still for you to get climate crisis as the lead story on the front page? I mean, there is that old, you know, hackneyed phrase, isn't there? If it, what is it? If it bleeds, it leads, the old Fleet Street thing. Can you trump those stories and can you get climate crisis on the front page easily? Is it difficult? Does it never happen? Uh, it certainly does not never happen, if you don't mind the double <laughs> negative. I mean, it happens pretty often. And I'm, I'm fortunate to work for um, The Guardian, which um, takes uh, you know the climate crisis and the losses of wildlife uh, around the world extremely seriously, which is why we've got, I don't know, something like eight, ten reporters around 
world um, on this, if not more. Um, so, um, you know, there's that. I mean, you know, there's, there's one splash in, on the paper every day. We talk about print, and uh, of course, there's hundreds of stories every day, so it's pretty fierce competition. Um, but I think the last splash I wrote was maybe two weeks ago about um, the fact that the ocean had reached its uh, hottest uh, temperature in recorded history. Um, so, um, no, I think, I mean, in the last 18 months, things have probably changed a bit. I think, you know, um, uh, partly to do with um, the increasing obviousness of the impacts of climate change, whether that's, you know, hurricanes in America or Mozambique or wildfires in California and um, Australia. I think the impacts um, are getting much more obvious. We had it in the UK uh, in, in the summer with the hottest temperature ever recorded in Cambridge in July. So um, I think that combined with uh, the student, uh, student youth strikes, uh, Greta Thunberg uh, led that, um, those things have, have given it a, a sort of greater salience and, and that's probably helping. I think I noticed that the paper, you know, we're writing more stories about these things throughout all the different departments, whether that's, you know, business or foreign news or culture or art. Mm. So um, I think it's getting easier, but um, it's certainly never been impossible. Has, uh, do you think it's changed for you as somebody? How long have you been writing for The Guardian for? I've been 12 years. And has it got easier to tell these kinds of stories or have pe- have, has it been... Have people been wanting to hear these kind of stories more? So I, I know um, when I joined in 2008, um, the deputy at the time, uh, guy called Ian Katz, um, was very clear that uh, our environment coverage was not going to be put into a ghetto of an environment section that came mm. out on a Tuesday or whatever. It, it had to permeate every every section of the newspaper. So that's been in place for you know more than a decade. Um, I think what I'd say is that the So it is bleeding, and so it is leading. Yeah, I mean, so, so sort of yeah. that phrase Lucy, Lucy talked about, if it bleeds, it leads. That was sort of about, you know, gory murders and crime stories, you know, would be on the front page. Well, to be fair, um, a lot of the uh, environmental news we uh, write about is pretty scary too. How do you keep people's interest, Damien? Because every day, you know, it, oh, it's getting hotter, it's the same thing. Like, how, how, do, we, how do you keep the story kind of fresh and alive in people's minds? That's a good question. So um, a phrase that uh, is not in the Guardian style guide, but one that I use uh, quite often is talk about uh, the climate crisis and, and losses of wildlife as uh, slow motion disasters. Um, and that's because they are incremental, as you described. You know, the temperature creeps up a fraction every day, every week, every month, and uh, losses of wildlife do the same. Um, and, and that doesn't easily fit into the sort of traditional uh, news cycle, a new structure where, you know, bang, we've got a coronavirus spreading around the world, or bang, we've got a president who's being impeached, sorry. Um, and so, you know, those things are, are kind of um, easier to cover in the traditional fashion. But um, I think, you know, the, the impacts and implications are so broad now that it's not that hard, actually, you know, because um, it's, you know, getting to uh, impact on people's lives um, much more directly, um, no matter where you live around the world. Um, sometimes in, in good ways, sometimes in bad ways. I mean, take an example in the UK: um, electric cars are, are flying out of the uh, showrooms. They can't make them fast enough. 
Yeah, they're yeah, not literally so. flying. They're flying out of the showroom, just in case you. <laughs> well, they're, I'm hoping well, they're for not a literally flying out of the showroom. Time I get. <laughs> well, <they're> not, <laughs> depends how you use literal in a in a Love Island sense. Um, crash my dreams. I want a flying car. No, <laughs> you, you thank you. The point it. I was trying to make was that um, you know the impetus for electric cars has come from uh, legislation, which is related to um, uh, climate change and reducing um, emissions. Um, but you know, within ten years, pretty much everyone will be driving. Um, electric cars, and that's good news, not just because it reduces emissions, it also reduces air pollution, which is a big drag on um, the NHS in terms of the health impacts, they're a bit quieter, they're really nice to drive, um, and so it's actually cheaper to run as well, um, because petrol's expensive and electricity isn't, so um, that's good things all round. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of one example of a, of a positive thing that, um, you know, people notice things like, uh, you know, changing wildlife in the parks and gardens um, as, as uh, our, our climate changes so i think it's getting pretty real and that makes it an easier story to tell so it's like um it's a great time to be an environmental reporter because people want to listen but it's a terrible time because environmental stuff is really scary <laughs> that's a good way to um mm. it's a good way to uh, put it tom i mean i think you know it, it's some people ask me sometimes you know don't you get really depressed writing about this stuff for year on year and i mean it certainly gets frustrating when the um, signs are very obvious and the actions are very clear and they don't get taken. Um, on the other hand, I'm still very fortunate to be in a position where I can you know, spend my days writing about this stuff in the hope that it might make some difference. So that conversation I found personally really interesting um, and it made me think a lot about the words that I use and the context that I use them. I think probably the one that I've thought about the most is when I talk about climate i think i tend to just mm-hmm. use the word crisis more um yeah because that gets across the idea that there is something happen and it's uh, happening and it's urgent i find with climate change it maybe feels like that it's not so bad oh a change of climate you know that might be nice or also that it's kind of inevitable a thing that's kind of passively happening rather than something that's been brought about by people um but there's but it, you can't really get one term for every situation but you but that's different from recognizing that like the terms that you have been using for a long time are inadequate i don't think i've used the term climate change since we had that conversation i yeah i kind of i I feel that i'm so used to saying climate change that i often do say climate change and then i kind of correct myself or think about what what's right for that conversation well there was a very interesting twitter thread conversation that I noticed the other day and this was um, Dr Tamsin Edwards very respected climate scientist who'd written a very good piece on the fires in the Arctic for the Guardian and someone had said to her oh you I think something like you don't normally say climate breakdown and she said well I didn't maybe you're reading a different piece and what she found out was that when it had gone through the sub-editing process they had applied these style changes to her piece, but she doesn't say climate breakdown. She would say climate change. Hmm. Anyway, check out the conversation if you are into it's, this. It's really interesting because like the conversa- the thread on Twitter, if you find it, is it's a really reasoned and, you know, like conversation about how we use words and also who should get to choose them. You know, if you contribute to the Guardian, should the Guardian be allowed to tell you what you- words to use? But or should you be able to choose them based on your context and how does style work? So 
Um, but I found that thread, yeah, really enlightening and really well, reasonable. Well, it's a, it's a balance though, isn't it? Yeah. Because having, you know, I, I was a columnist for like 14 years for, for The Guardian and it's a process and a system mm -hmm. and there has to be some functionality to it and it has to be quick and it has to be practical. Yeah. So you do, you do end up making compromises sometimes as well and you need a process. You need to be edited, you need to be sub-edited. I certainly do. <laughs> so anyway, it is very, very interesting and it's not, as you say, a one-size-fits-all. Yeah, because if you've got stories, you need sort of consistency in the terms you use so people kind of are on the same page when they know what you're saying. But also, if that story is changing and you're still tr on the process of trying to find the right words together, that has to be a you have to be you have to talk about what words you use. Um, so, yeah, I think I think any of our American colleagues who are listening to this will laugh because if you've ever written for an American publication, there's not <laughs> there's not much room for personal uh, personal nuance as the writer. Really? Oh, everything is fact checked. Everything is house style. I've had pieces where I didn't realize I'd written them by the end of it. Wow. Anyway, that's a whole different, that's a whole different mm. situation. Mm. I mean, I find this with writing scripts for nature documentaries. You know, if, you, if it's a team activity in, in like writing commentary or writing words out, people have different styles. Like you and me, Lucy, like we were writing the script for this episode of like the kind of things we talk about and use the term hype beast. And okay, do you have to keep bringing this up? I love I, it. I, that no, was actually I, like a it, joke. No, I, I actually like the hype beast term. Like <laughs> at first I was surprised, but now I have warmed to it. I wasn't familiar with it, but now I feel hype beast is in me and I will use that, that term more often. Moving on uh, to a very different and more personal kind of question. How do you begin to describe yourself and what you do? The last few years, the way I describe myself and what I do has changed as the urgency of what's happening to the natural world and the environment has become more acute and I felt that I need to kind of change what I do um, to fit that. But it's hard in this changing situation to, to be able to talk about yourself easily. So, Lucy, What do you mean? Well, I don't know if, like, I would have at first just described myself as, like, a director, but now, mm. like, I feel that I, I don't just make films because I want to be a director. I actually make films because I want to help a situation that I think is really scary. So I really want to, and I don't know what the words are, you know, before, if, if it was just mm. your point in life was to have a job and that's who you were. What if your point in life is to try and take on a challenge that you would like to see solved and help that come about? I don't know what the words are for that um, mm. because it, it's a process and it's a community-based thing rather than an individual and ego-based thing. Anyway, mm. Lucy and I, like went to this talk with Gillian Burke did for the students at Falmouth University. And she talked about this exact thing really well. So Gillian is a broadcaster and a uh, presenter for BBC Springwatch. What is Springwatch? Well, it is a hugely popular BBC show, just in case you are um, in a, not in the in UK cave, or you don't watch it. You've been hibernating. You might not have heard about. It. Actually, if you've been hibernating, maybe you would have heard. They, of they'll be interested They'd in been you filming if you've been hibernating. You. Yeah. So, so basically, this is like a ratings behemoth. It's been on air for years, and like twice a year at pivotal moments for nature, uh, very well known presenters gather somewhere like the Cairngorms in Scotland, where there's lots of nature and wildlife, and on consecutive nights they present this show to the nation, and they do things like watch, you know eggs hatch and you know it's, it's it's really really cool i love it i'm a super fan mm. so it was obviously thrilling for me 
to meet Gillian. And a really nice thing about Springwatch and where they were very innovative in TV in general in the UK was their audience interaction. For, I mean, it for many, many years, they've been having their audience send them in their own footage and their own stories. Before that was really a done thing, really, in broadcasting. And because of that, they're not just a broadcaster, they're also a community. And I think that also means that the, the presenters on the programme and the people that they bring to the programme and the conversations they have are very different from many other uh, TV shows. Yeah, so these presenters are really well known and it's almost like if you saw them out and about in the supermarket, you would walk up to them and tell them that you saw an owl. When was the last time you saw an owl? I saw an owl. The last time I saw an owl was probably around February. I can't believe that you didn't tell Gillian that you saw an owl when we talked to her. Oh, such a lost opportunity. Oh, I'm so gutted. How embarrassing. Do you think I couldn't email her? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> we phoned her up. She was at home in Cornwall and I forgot to tell her that I saw an owl. But we did cover a lot of other stuff. So this episode is about words and um, Lucy and I both went to the amazing talk that you gave uh, at Falmouth University. And uh, as part of that talk, you, you talked about finding ways to describe yourself and what you do. And that, I think, resonated with both Lucy and me, because the first time we'd met, that's something we'd talked about, that over the course of our careers, both the words for what our actual job was had changed. You know, social media hadn't existed at the beginning. And so even how you tried to describe the actual process of what you did had changed. But also the stakes had raised so much. And hmm. the uh, we, uh, so that we had be- sort of weren't sure often whether we were broadcasters or whether we were public educators or whether sometimes we were activists. And we're still both, I think, of us wrestling with this a bit. And I found the way you just talked about that really interesting. And I'd, I'd love to ask you a bit more about that today. Wow. Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, um, language and um sort of you know identity and all that good stuff um yeah I mean I think I'm still kind of you know I don't I hope I never stop evolving through um you know what that actually means um I don't think I gave it nearly enough thought when I first sort of kicked off in the adult world and of you know sort of trying to make a living and um and do it in a meaningful way um you know, initially, I sort of had labels in my mind, like I'm a biologist. Um, I didn't quite pick up the environmentalist thing because this, that was sort of like what I felt like what um, it didn't sort of sit with where I thought I was. I was sort of like, you know, I'm very much about, you know, imparting, you know, the wonder of the natural world. And, you know, and I really at the time believed that that was enough you know, that would be enough to get enough people on board to bring about sort of, um, you know, a world where you know, we, we wouldn't end up where we are now, basically, you know. So I'm talking like 20 years ago when I first started working as a researcher, a junior researcher in the BBC and places like that. Um, so, yeah, that was sort of, you know, almost like a default label because that was the degree, the piece of paper I, you know, arrived at the you know the doors of the BBC with and that was my ticket. So I was a biologist, um, but over the years, you know, that has clearly changed because I didn't stay in academia. So I no longer really feel like I, I really um, 
can actually own that title because I haven't done any active research. So, you know, these are the, the voices in my head, actually, that I wrestle mm. with. Like, am I really a biologist? No. I, you know, when was the last time? Have I published anything? No. You know, so um, and I feel like, oh, my gosh, is that the biggest con? But, you know, but the truth is, well, I did a biology degree and that informs the way I see the world. Um, however, more recently, what I've sort of started to think about is, you know, this idea of like, you know, when are people ready to hear stories? And sometimes, you know, you finding a different voice to tell a story is a really a much more effective way of doing it. And actually, mm. um, you know, that's, I think, maybe where I've I've kind of arrived at, you know, sort of got maybe gone sort of round and round in circles. But I sort of I'm trying to blur boundaries a lot more now. So what I think of is like, yes, my um, there's a great, if we want to talk about language, here's a great word, Weltanschau, which is a German word that I don't think you have an English equivalent for. And um, it, it's like worldview is like the, um, the literal translation, but it's, it means more than that. And um, Weltanschau. Weltanschau, yeah. Um, yeah, which is kind of probably not a language you expected me to speak just now, but I just realized no. that's a bit of a curveball for everybody. Um, I grew, do you speak, I, I, do you speak German? I, um, I, I lived for about eight years in Austria, so I sort of learned um, German, but I haven't, you know, lived there for a long time. But yeah, Wunderbar. so I pick up these kind of little things, you know. <laughs> So world view, Super my casual. world. I know, yes, yeah, so it's just I'll German. drop in some other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Just keep everyone their toes. Um, yeah, so it's about world view. And, as, you know, so the way I have, um, you know, I don't want to say conditioned because that sounds really quite sinister. But, you know, the, the, the framework within which I interpret what I see around me has been very much informed by the education I received. And the education I received was very much um, a product of, you know, I guess, you know, probably the original thing was like, you know, a system of education that evolved in Britain in the 1800s, or maybe a bit earlier than that. And, you know, we've kind of just worked with that. That's just sort of evolved. Mm. And what I've started to kind of really play with in terms of my language, storytelling, identity, labels, all of that kind of stuff, is how, what are the other systems of thought that give us different views of the world and how does that change the story? So, you know, if we're talking about um, climate and if you're looking at the climate crisis through the um, lens of an Aboriginal in Australia, how will that story be different? Or, you know, I mean, that's an extreme example, but like even mm. in Britain, and I often make this point, that there was an indigenous culture in this country and there was indigenous wisdom, and, you know, that is a, a term that people like to use in this country. It's just that, you know, the genocide and the um, removal of a culture and a, in its identity happened a long, long time ago and people have kind of almost forgotten that that happened here. So I think there's um, lots of parallels. It's not just about sort of these fringes, you know, kind of communities in places like Native American communities or Aboriginal communities, Maori communities even. You know, I think that's quite sort of true of everywhere that um, culturally every place on earth has its own kind of system of thought that um, gives you a different story of what we, you know, what we see as the world. And we if we consciously choose to maybe jump tracks and sit in someone else's you know seat the hot seat for a while and try and see the world in a different way does that give you a different way of telling the same story 
Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark disappeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Do you find that you're sort of then thinking, you know, because we used to just figure out what we were from our payslip. It would tell us what we did, you know. But now we've got to go on Twitter and somehow summarise ourselves in in a few a small number of characters. And you don't necessarily write down what's on your payslip. And you find yourself thinking, oh, OK, what are the constituent things that make me? What's my background? What? How does that make me look at these stories differently? How does that make me think of my role differently? How, what do I bring in storytelling? You know, when you start to have to actually reconsider where you're coming from and the impacts of that. Is, is that kind of what you're talking about a bit? Yeah, I guess so. Um, I mean, well, yeah, one layer of that. I mean, I guess, well, I don't, I don't do Twitter really. I have a Twitter account, but I just find <laughs> that really hard, you know? So I'm like, I just don't. Tom doesn't yeah, really do it either. I just forward articles about science. Sorry, Twitter. Like... <laughs> I'm the only one who's representing so hot right now. I'm so Yeah, Lucy's, Lucy's really good on Twitter. If you're, if you're listening, follow her and uh, yeah. definitely. Um... <laughs> I do Instagram. You can follow me on Instagram. Um, no. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think a big part of it is also like a personal process for me because I'm, um, they're layers. It's like a, like the onion, you know, they're layers um, of that I can sort of reveal about myself to depending mm. on who I'm speaking to. And um, that sounds really dodgy, doesn't it? But anyway, it sounds, I think it sounds really interesting. <laughs> I, know, I think that's a really interesting way of putting it um, because it shows that there's much more complexity than you would normally, you know, that there's always more complexity to a person and than just how they are in a particular situation. I think so. I mean, I think for me, this it's it's obvious because, like, to, it's obvious to me because I know my story. But you know, just like really quickly, so my my kind of the layers are like I'm black, I'm a woman. Um, those are sort of like the first kind of outer layers. Um, and as you move in, like, you know, I'm like, yes, I'm black, but in a sense, I assume that label partly because I like it and also because that's my sort of way of showing solidarity you know to um, people that outwardly everyone identifies me as belonging to inwardly um, I'm actually you know a really complicated mix of um, ethnicities my I have sort of Sri Lankan West African East African French Corsican French Polynesian Malagasy you know like a really weird mix of people and Chinese to throw into that um, and, you know, I don't even know what to call that other than maybe Creole, which is um, kind of, you know, because it was that whole mixing pot was happening around the kind of Indian Ocean, um, you know, it was kind of like melting pot, if you like, you know, from the Arabian Peninsula to Asia to Africa and the European sort of um, colonized as well within that. Like the, the I'm a product of all of that somehow really complicated story actually and one that I'm still unpicking and my family you know on both sides are actually very good at trying to do more and more research to find out more about sort of where we come from because actually none of us really 
um, can say that we, you know, drop a pin on a map and say, that's where we come from. So by not having um, an identity that I can easily anchor myself to, um, you know, beyond sort of like what people see, the color of my skin and my gender, like everything else is a story. And mm. um, so for me, you know, this is, and honestly, it's taken me way too long to get, figure this out about myself. But um, for me, this is where I'm at, this really exciting place now where I'm thinking, you know, this is just for me, like, you know, this idea that let me explore the Asian part of my identity. You know, my grandfather was a singerly Sri Lankan. And, you know, his name was um, officially, uh, he was a De Silva, that, you know, loads of De Silvas in Sri Lanka, apparently. I've never been even, can you believe it? And, um, and you know, but I think his clan name was Linda Mollegay. So that is like in my blood, you know. Um, but similarly, I have um, Seminole Indian, apparently. Um, black Seminoles um, from either the Florida Panhandle or the Caribbean, somewhere around there, that, you know, there's that blood. So let me look into that and let me wear that hat for a while. And how does that feel? It, it gives me an opportunity to explore um, different ways of seeing the world. And I'll give mm. you like, um, you know, and, and that will be literally the language you speak, but also the language you use. It's like appreciating like a view of the natural world that isn't about um you know, even sort of the system of um, classification that we use, you know, even within science is being kind of like reviewed, if you like, not completely, it's not being taken apart, but it's, there are more layers being revealed, actually, that's probably a better way of putting it. Mm. So for me, like, I guess, I'm it's a long winded way of answering your question, but um, the language for me is like a, a kind of gateway into peeling back layers and revealing more about the way we see the world. Because I've started to appreciate that the way I've seen the world and the natural world especially is so informed by biology and, and like a formal academic education. And I'm actually really interested now in like, well, how would a sandbushman interpret the same type of behavior? Because actually what's interesting with sandbushmen is um, the kind of shamanic and hunting rituals that go around, they are able to predict animal behavior almost as accurately as sort of you know um you know science you know biology would so it may be a different system of thought but can they predict you know the outcome of an event with a different way of mm. looking at the world i'm interested i, I had in that. A, i had like a, i was wondering about this with wildlife films and i was thinking we're so used in wildlife films to having a sort of god voice saying like here is the deer it's going over there because it wants to mate if it, the winter is bad, it will die. Like, firstly, as if there's no mystery, as if we actually know all these things to be true rather than them being hypotheses built up from observations by individual people. I wanted to take the same natural history film sequences and I wanted to see what people from different cultures around the world would, what stories they would tell with those images because I think they would be very different in, very, in different places. Oh my gosh, I love um, that. Mm. I would let's watch. do that yeah oh cool yeah, <laughs> yeah. this is great <laughs> yeah. just, I think because what you're talking about I think I feel I feel a great affinity to what you were saying but you know my education was also it was very science-based it was, it was biology and I, I called myself biologist if you asked me what I was but 
you know, in our job, we travel around the world, we meet people from lots of different places. As we get older, we speak to our families, we learn about the kind of places and people that make us up. And you think you, you and then for most people, that's, you know, a lot to do. But then if you think, well, I'm also a storyteller, I'm a communicator. And it starts those your identity as you as it becomes more complex and you're more interested in it. And as you realize that your way of seeing the world is not shared by many other people in the world, it, it becomes really, really interesting and really complicated trying to figure out where how to t- tell stories to people. Yeah, 100 percent. And, you know, it's um, I mean, this it's it's so rich and complex. So for me, it, it's actually like an exciting challenge rather than an overwhelming one. You know, how do you tell Mm. stories from more perspectives? I mean, Mm. the obvious thing there is kind of, you know, more diversity and representation so that, you know, people are given the opportunity to tell the stories from different perspectives. Um, But, you know, for me, again, you know, they're the obvious, um, you know, kind of demographics that need representation, definitely. Um, But then there are also the the stories that don't get told um, that aren't necessarily... I mean, I'm uh, sorry, I'm, I'm winding my way to, you know, trying to get to the place. I might as well just cut to the chase, right? Um, so, <laughs> you know, I'm just thinking kind of with regards to, you know, um, this podcast. And, you know, I imagine a lot of your listeners will be people who are very, very concerned and care about, you know, climate and the state of um, our planet and our place in it as humans and all those sort of stories. So one of the things that I have come across through my work um, in on Spring Watch and stuff is is filming on sites where um, the the area sort of been regenerated from like you know like post apocalyptic kind of industrial sites. Um, the places I'm thinking of are kind of in Yorkshire, which is like the mining coal mining heartland, um, or one of the coal mining heartlands of of this country. And in the course of about 20, 30, 40 years, a lot of these sites have now become nature reserves and been acquired by the RSPB. Um, So it was a great, you know, these are good news stories from a naturalist and nature point of view that, you know, it's incredible to see how quickly nature can bounce back from that. But um, while I was filming there, and this often happens, I'm sure, you you know, you've you've both experienced that with your work. When you're sort of there to cover one story, there's another story happening um, that Mm. you can't quite pull into what you're doing because it's, you know, so separate. Always. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm always covering the wrong story. (laughs) Yeah, the thing that you get back from the shoot and that you tell your mum. Yeah. Is, yeah. uh, then she goes, well, why didn't you film back? And, and you're like, <laughs> you're right. I'm back. <laughs> and you're like, no, because our plan was to film the other thing. And that's what we did. And you and always the things you tell people, the things that you think are the most interesting, often not the things you had got in the can. It, it, um, it's so, yeah, it's so annoying. But I'm glad I'm not alone because I'm <laughs> no, like, totally. can we just do that instead? Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, there I am at, you know, one of these RSPV reserves um, in, in Yorkshire. And um, there's this like giant machine um, that's sort of now become a museum piece because frankly, I think no one knew how to move it because it literally was like the biggest machine that had been built of its time. And I think it was in the 1960s. It's, um, it stands on this reserve, St. Aidan's um, RSPB reserve. And it, the machine itself is called Oddball. And I can't even describe it. It's like the most gigantic crane. And it sort of, des- it was designed to like scrape the surface of the earth to reveal, you know, coal seams underneath, or at least give access to coal seams. So while we were there to film the spring watch item, 
I got chatting to a bunch of guys um, who were either retired miners or, you know, they were the custodians of this machine. And um, I'm always curious about stuff. So I just start asking about how it worked and, you know, and they were like, oh, come in. So they loved it. You know, they were like, someone's interested, you know, and I got completely drawn into this world and they started talking about what it was like um, to work in the mines, how difficult the work was, how dangerous it was, how, um, you know, technically they had to understand X, Y and Z. But then a lot of it was just intuition as well, you know, and you get to know how the seams move through the earth because the more you do it, the more you get a feel for it. You know, they were really going into it. Good storytellers themselves. Let's hand it to them because um, they had me hooked. And but I did listen and what I started to realize was like, oh, my goodness, this is like this weird time that we're living in where, you know, um, let's face it, you know, many of us now, um, the lifestyle we enjoy um, is, is, is kind of a result of this industry and sacrifices that were made. I mean, this is one of the things I heard a lot when I was talking to these men and other people who worked, um, you know, the communities from this, these areas, was there was a sense that there was personal sacrifice, virtually every single story I'm sorry, every single family um, had a tale of an uncle, a parent, a grandfather, somebody who died in the ground that those nature reserves now um, sat on. So I started to realize this isn't a simple like, oh, coal is bad. And we just, you know, we have to honor the lives lost. We have to honor the fact that there's incredible skill and expertise in order to do what they did and great risk taken as well. And to just go, right, coal is bad, you know, fossil fuels need to be, yes, I, of course, you know, we need to move on from that. But, you know, there was something in me that was going, hmm, you know, how do we tell this story while also honoring these emotions that I'm getting from these people right now? Mm. So for me, that is very much about language and storytelling and perspective. Mm. You know, it's sort of how do you tell the story that, you know, environmentalists are trying to tell, but in a different way? You know, and um, and appreciating the nuances. Mm. You know, yeah, that's a word. Yeah, and they're so embedded. I mean, I was thinking when when you were talking then, Jilly, and I was thinking about. I remember doing a film on the decommissioning of a fossil fuel power station, <laughs> which doesn't sound a very emotional story when I put it like that. But you know, there were guys who'd worked there their whole careers, and they would tell you about the time. You know, really severe winter when they'd come in and slept on the floor to keep the power going, to keep the lights on. And they, you know, their, their, their narrative was kind of heroic. And then I thought about, I know someone that works on wind turbines of um, New Brighton in Merseyside. And I know, because I've talked to them, about when the engineers go up there in all weathers. And, you know, that's also really heroic. But I never hear that story told in mm. that way. Yeah. I just mm. hear about the shift to green energy or carbon emissions I don't really hear the human story told and therefore personally I find it harder to connect with so mm. I think it's I think probably it's just a simple question like how can we persuade the gatekeepers to let us tell more of these human emotional stories because they you know that that is what people really connect with and also as a as a storyteller they're the things that I best at telling actually yeah that's the only way I've kind of been able to reconcile like why is it you know that thing we all agreed like yeah sometimes you're doing one story and you're like actually the real story you know um hmm. so in order for us to make the inroads that we have as 
a species into um, interpreting the world, you know, whether it's arts or sciences or whatever, um, you know, we've had to like create these departments, you know, that's this kind of academic kind of um, hangover, if you like, of, of the way that we've all been educated. And, and, you know, and I think that's true of even in, in sort of primary school, you know, everything's a taught, um, you know, well, this is science and this is, this is maths and this is English. And, you know, everything has to be kind of taken apart in order to have these bite-sized chunks to acquire knowledge. And then we don't reintegrate that back easily anyway. Um, and, you know, maybe I'm speaking for myself here, but that's how I feel. Like it's taken me a long time to realize that actually I need to kind of reintegrate like, you know, what I've learned through kind of formal education, but also what I've learned from um, my life, from the people I've spoken to, the people I've met, the things I've seen, the feelings I've had, all of that needs to kind of like find its place again. Um, because like keeping it all separate is just actually quite hard work. And it's that feeling of like, you know, like we we're saying, you're like doing one story, but there's another story going on. And like, why can't we, you know, I mean, I know there's sometimes practical reasons why you can't, but um, it's that feeling of trying to integrate. And, and in, by integrating it, then it changes your language, changes your perspective. Um, I, I, I wonder if there's an element that in order to feel confident in communicating the human nuance and complexity of stories you see in the natural world, you have to start by allowing yourself to acknowledge the complexity of your own human nuance, your own your, yourself and your own complexity. You're not just a label of biologist or filmmaker. You're all of these, like do, there's a Walt Whitman poem called um, Song of Myself. And he, he in one of the lines is that I contain multitudes. And I find myself thinking about that all the time. Whenever somebody else, you know, when you hear yourself described by someone else and they're like, oh, that's Tom, he's this. And you're like, wow, is that what, what I am? You know, um, and it's kind of startling. And and I I don't know, I just feel in my work, the more I think about sort of the complex, you know, me and where I've come from and what I've seen and and then relating to that to the world, it changes the kind of stories I want to tell and how I want to tell them. Yeah, definitely. I mean... um... I don't know if we've got time, but I'll tell you anyway. And you can always cut this out if you think it's totally irrelevant. But um, <laughs> so, like for me, I the the I literally had probably a moment where I realised, oh, hang on a second, I'm not mining um, my own stories, you know, to tell stories. And I sort of realised I was actually sitting on like some wealth there, you know, not like sort of monetary wealth, obviously, but you know, a wealth of stories, and. Um, it was basically, it was a time, it was a few years back. So my, I'd been married for, you know, I'd been in the same relationship for almost 20 years and then that ended, had kids. So it was like the classic, like, oh, I'm getting divorced and my life felt like I was falling apart. And um, in kind of, you know, the time and all the days melded into one, a bit like lockdown, actually. Um, and um, I remember waking up one morning from a really clear dream, you know, like it was almost like lucid dreaming. And the dream was that I was, um, I promise you this is going to be relevant, by the way. Okay. <laughs> I, was like, I don't care. I'm so interested anyway. I we're, we're invested. We're invested in this story. Yeah. I had a dream. Um, <laughs> so the dream was that um, I'd woken up in my house and actually it was so clear that I thought I was awake. Except I realized I was dreaming when I started opening doors that I didn't think were there, shouldn't have been there. 
and I was opening doors into rooms that I didn't realize the house had. And I was, and one room would lead to another room and each room was beautifully furnished, like completely like ready to go. I mean, not necessarily in my taste, I have to say, but anyway, they were very lavish. And, um, and I kept going, and I was just like, and I was really chastising myself. I was like really giving myself a hard time um, for not realizing I had all of this. And, I, and then it, like, it got like really elaborate and I flung the doors open and all of a sudden, like my house was on this kind of like beautiful river. And there was this kind of cafe sort of terrace thing fully laid out with like cafe, you know, all the chairs and deck tables and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, I, I've got everything I need. And those are the actual words that I woke up to was I've got everything I need. And me being like, you know, the Creole that I am. So plenty of sort of, you know, juju in my sort of family and, you know, um, there are plenty of kind of clairvoyance, you know, in my sort of line. So there's always a sense that I can't just let a dream go. Like I've got to try and find some meaning in it. And um, so, you know, at the time, like I hadn't been working for years because I'd been a mom and all this sort of stuff. So I really felt like I was starting from ground zero. And I thought to myself, what is this dream trying to tell me? And I was like, oh, okay. It didn't happen straight away. But as I sort of kept going back to it, I thought like, I have everything I need. And I kept thinking about that. And it started off with just like, well, I can use my voice. You know, that's something no one can take from me. Um, and well, maybe after a hard night. But anyway, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, and um, and then it started, you know, I started thinking about the stories that I have, um, the, the stories I could tell. And I got really surprised that, you know, some simple stories like about how I connected to nature as a child and how I used to watch sunbirds and a hibiscus bush, all those sorts of things. People go, oh, my gosh, wow, that's so, you know, we, we could see that. We could see the color of the sunbirds and we could see, you know. And I started to realize that what I was trying to do was starting to pull the threads, the different threads of my life so far. Meet Jillian, the biologist, Jillian, the mother. Jillian the divorcee, Jillian the child, Jillian the, the wannabe actress when she was a, you know, a, a teenager, all those things I was starting to pull together and weave together because it just become too much like hard work um, living all of those separate lives and keeping them separate. And what I found, and I feel like I'm, this is a process I'm still you know, going through, is the more I sort of like let all those different parts of me just be together, I find it easier to... Um, tell stories I find it easier to um, apply the, those personal experiences to the work that I feel committed to which is about the you know environment and people um, and planet and all that stuff um, and so this is you know so for me allowing myself Julian the biologist to talk about dreams and dream interpretation would have been like I would never have let those two things meet you know a few years back I'd have been like, I can't, I'm a scientist. I'm not allowed to ex admit to people that I have not been able to shake off the kind of superstitious kind of family culture that I grew up in, where, you know, I still hit my head when I want to touch wood. And if I'd spill salt, I'll chuck it over my left. I cannot help myself, you know? <laughs> and so, um, and I just was like, that's not allowed. I can't allow myself to be all of those things at the same time. And I find that being able to weave all of that together and start to appreciate that actually, as a storyteller, I've got everything I need, you know, already. Um, that sort of helped me in terms of just being more kind of, and I, like I said, I'm still not, I'm not good at this, you know. There are places where I've, I notice my language and the way I tell a story, the references I make, I'll start to kind of censor myself and shut it down. 
Um, but when I'm happy and comfortable, like I am here today, then, you know, I'm really happy to share that. And I think, you know, actually, God, yeah, this feels good because I can just be honest that I am superstitious, but I'm a scientist. And then to me, that means that if I, you know, in some future encounter with, you know, when I'm trying to cover a story and I'm trying to like, you know, um, present it in a way that kind of connects with people, maybe I am allowed to be a bit superstitious about something, even though I'm a scientist. You know what I mean? So I guess mm. that's maybe, you know, you kind of, what you were saying, Tom, mm. actually made me think about that dream and thought, yeah, that was definitely a turning point in kind mm. of how, you know, how I approach the work I do. Is that the point that you found your voice or is that too much of a... Oh, wouldn't that be great? Headline. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the point I mean, it would where... help me out enormously if, if, you know... Can I just say yes to that? True. Would that be good? Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> It made yes. me think about, I had to, I, my the weird dream, I'm not going to tell you, I had a weird dream yesterday, but now I'm like, maybe I should have paid that more attention. Yeah. Um, I, li I like the idea that, you know, like we sort of like suppress all these other facets of our personality because we feel they'd somehow not allow us to be a communicator in a certain way, whereas actually they might actually make people listen to us more and identify and be more sympathetic and see us as a, as a, as like a human being. Do you do that, um, Tom? I definitely, well, I don't, I don't know. Because um, I definitely do it. And I, I wonder if it's, um, if it's yeah. a gender thing as well. I, well, I definitely, I'm definitely sure that I wouldn't necessarily say like some of the more personal things that I feel or think if I'm in a commissioning meeting um, where I'm trying to project a sort of fully professional, very scientific, you know, I got this guy's kind of, yeah, so give me your money so I can make the film kind of front. Um, but I also, I, I was wondering, like, while Julian was talking, like, with the internet, with pe many people being able to film, edit, and transmit things that they've seen, so lots of people can be filmmakers, you don't have to have a £50,000 camera and an internship at the BBC and, you know, and be have a commissioned film to be able to actually tell a story. What people are, or at least what I'm much more interested in now is, authenticity and um, people who have something to say. And if you haven't got, if you're just trying to say what you think other people are waiting for you to say, if you're do, like, doing an impression of a presenter, if you're doing like a projection of what you think gives you most credibility, I think people see through that. And I think that at the moment, like, it's, it's a really interesting time because the kinds of things you're talking about, like allowing all those layers of yourself to be and to exist in your communications. I think that that's an advantage now and perhaps a way it wasn't before um, when there were such more fixed ways of broadcasting, fixed ways of being seen. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I actually, I started off like with this real kind of um, suspicion. I did not like social media, you know, and I still, I'm not a fan of like certain platforms, um, but there are, you know, particularly Instagram I love. Um, but I've really um, feel so excited about um, the potential for people to advocate, um, to, to speak up, you know, use a proper, proper, proper language here, speak up and stand up for something or just be themselves, you know, in whatever way to to represent this incredible diversity of um, human experience. Um, you know, I sort of feel like, 
you know, we're more similar than we realize yet, you know, the human experience is just rich and like inexhaustible in its range, it seems to me anyway. So for me, like traditional broadcast, um, you know, I guess, you know, flip that on its head, um, social media, the internet, um, as long as you've got a phone and access to the internet, you've got a stage. Everybody and anybody has, you know, can have a platform. And of course, some people go, oh, that's not great. The noise out there. Yes, no, that's true. There is a lot of noise, but it's still an amazing thing. And there's loads of potential. And in our kind of sector, if you like, or, you know, um, of natural history and environmentalism and all that stuff, um, what I'm really, lockdown has, I think, um, given, um, like, has allowed people to showcase themselves a lot more um, in, ter- in, this, in this field particularly. And I'm really excited by that because I'm starting to see that there's loads of voices out there. And I think that's something that maybe, you know, um, the kind of real, you know, top flight, you know, kind of BBC um, style natural history, you know, whether it's on Netflix or BBC or whatever, you know, platform needs to maybe this is the evolution that we need to make um, in our industry is to move away from the thought that there is a one figurehead. Um, or one voice and there is something about that you know that as humans we like to sort of have a leader Um, but at the same time I just think there's so many voices out there and actually I think it would um, do the whole thing a service to recognize that it isn't just a kind of a single um, leader with you know people galvanized behind um, that there there are many people who have uh, something to say about the way the world works at the moment and the way it could work. And, you know, I just find that really exciting. So, you know, like you were saying about um, being able to find your voice and integrate these different parts of us, I think that is going to be, you know, when we um, collectively um, start to embrace how diverse we all are in our human experience and actually allow that to come through and colour the stories that we tell and the language that we use, um, then, you know, that's, that we would start to kind of connect with more audiences. Um, because at the moment, you know, there is a very engaged audience that we talk to, and then there's a whole lot of other people that we don't. And I, you know, that's me, you know, and I'm sort of like scratching my head going like, why am I not reaching, you know, the places that I would like to reach? You know, so I have to do that kind of soul searching as well and think, you know, what is it that I'm not allowing of myself that would maybe help me to kind of reach out of this bubble and speak to a different audience? Um, so I think there's, there's a, if anything, to me, like lockdown has kind of given me um, a little bit of a snapshot of a future where we have many voices rather than, you know, one or two sort of figureheads of a movement. Um, And I would love to see that happen. Gillian, thank you. That was so great. It was such a thoughtful conversation and just so, like... Well, you, I love, you know I love chatting with you guys. And I can just do this over it, so, you know, but I just love chatting with you guys. And thank you so much. Okay, so Tom and Lucy, this is how much I love chatting to you guys. I've decided to record a little extra bit, like an epilogue or an afterthought for the original interview. Um, You know, we recorded that conversation back in May when it was already the infamous year of 2020. 
And in that chat, I told you some long story about the dream that set me on the journey that I'm on now. And Lucy, you wanted to know if this was also the moment when I found my voice. And that would have been a nice, tidy ending. But I couldn't say yes to that at the time, sadly. Um, you know, what we didn't know when we were recording that was that 2020 was, I don't know, is um, by no means done with us. So... Let's wind on a few weeks from when we recorded. We were recording and I'm sitting in a canoe on a lake in a rural pocket of the southwest of Britain. I'm facing the camera and I'm about to go on air for Spring Watch, for BBC Spring Watch. Um, it's also Blackout Tuesday and I'm a black woman on a live wildlife show and I feel like I'm about to cross the picket line. I honestly didn't know how I was going to do my job that night, except if I pulled together the threads of what I do, who I am, what I think, what I feel, what I stand for. And if I speak out about the Black Lives Matter movement going on thousands of miles away, albeit in America, but also here in Britain in the urban centers. Um, do you know, I have to say at this point as well, I had amazing support from my field producer who modeled what it is to be a white ally without even knowing it. She was brilliant. So anyway, so I'm on air. And it took all of maybe like 10 seconds. And all I said was it had been a strange few days and I felt very far away from the communities that I identify with and care about. Um, I went on to say that I also care about the story that I was there to cover for the watches. And I moved the narrative back to the job I was there to do, which was to talk about the environment and wildlife and natural habitat restoration. So that's it. You know, that's all I did. It was a very, if I'm honest, quiet, brief moment of reflection and within the body of the program. But, you know, it was a huge moment for me personally, because it was the first time in my role as a presenter on the series that I was able, actually, you know, I was, you know, I had to pull together those threads of what makes me, me in front of that audience. And it felt, you know, I was going to say it felt great. It, 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 it was, it felt right. It just felt right. So, you know, when we did the original interview, I also told you that I'd read a quote, something that said something along the lines of you can't tell stories that people aren't ready to hear. I actually found the source of it. Um, and I think I'm just going to leave it with this. So um, the person who said this was Adam Goods. He's an Aussie rules football player, believe it or not. And um, I had to look look up some some information about him. So his father was a British of British Irish ancestry. His mother's Aboriginal, one of the stolen generation. Um, he's been a really vocal advocate, alongside being an amazing athlete, a very vocal advocate for Indigenous rights in Australia and um, speaking out against racism. And so this is what he said with regards to advancing the movement for Indigenous rights and Aboriginal rights in Australia. He said, and I guess, you know, he would sound much better than I do with his Aussie accent, but I'll do my own accent for this. Um, <laughs> he said, we cannot force people to listen to our stories, but when they are ready to listen and walk beside us, we will be a better nation because of it. Um, I would say that's true of all of us everywhere. And I think I'm going to just leave it at that. I promise that's it. Um, I love talking to you guys. Thanks so much for having me on this podcast. Oh man, what a! Well, I think we can all agree that's that's uh, broadcast gold. That was amazing. She's wonderful, Gillian. 
Well, everyone, we are halfway through the series, uh, which is really remarkable. Uh, we didn't really, if we're, if we're honest, I don't think we really knew how long we'd do this for or what would happen. I think I've changed as a person. Yeah, I think. I mean, I I'm mean, still a person. Yeah, what? Well, <laughs> just, just to be clear I'm on species. Yeah, it's been really surprising for me. I thought that it'd be quite technical what we'd be doing. We'd be doing a lot of, um, this is the right thing to do. Maybe we should try this and sort of swapping tips. Whereas I found that actually the most impactful thing that's happened for me is is being inspired. I mean, you guys, listeners haven't heard some of the episodes we've got lined up and some of the interviews we've done, but there are some extraordinary people coming up who've done some really inspiring and courageous things. And yeah, it's been really emotional to talk to them and really encouraging. It feels like sometimes... I thought we'd be giving out a lot more information. Do this, do that. I think we get that, mm. but not from us. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of realised that uh, I didn't know as much as I thought I did, which is uh, a humbling um, experience. But, um, yeah, I think I do things differently, and I think I approach all of these stories with a much more open mind, actually. Mm. And I think in the past, you're so full of like rules and regulations. And, you know, I feel like I've come to a lot of stories with it already kind of written in my head to a certain extent. And yeah. I would say that is not the case now. Well, that well, I definitely I feel I feel really similar. Actually, I think often like I would come across a story in the world and I think, OK, well, my brain would then sort of go like some sort of uh, Tetris, like, I'll just turn this around until it fits the kind of story box hole shape that I normally put stories into. But one of the impacts of t talking to lots of different people with their different perspectives, which I think is one of the main things that we're missing on nature and climate is different people and different perspectives, is you have different views and different ways of thinking about stories. And they don't come from yourself. They come from other people. And you can't get them unless you listen to other people with different yeah. perspectives. That's it. They're not in you. They're not just there waiting mm -hmm. for you just to write them up. Yeah, it's you not like a, to, yeah. You have to go. <laughs> You've got to go talk to other people who have thought listen. it. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And the, and it's, you know, we talk a lot about bubbles and stuff, but, you know, it's made me really hungry to have, to ask other different people uh, to come and tell us their stories. Um so uh, on that note, please, please keep it coming. Keep your suggestions coming. Um, lots of people have contacted us with ideas for stories or gaps, like glaringly obvious gaps in our coverage. Um, uh, not just our coverage, everyone's coverage. So we really, really love hearing from you. And it feels like we're sort of building a community. Does that sound rather grandiose? I hope not. I, no, I think... I think it's also reminding us that we all are a community, people who are interested and concerned about these things and trying to do things like to help. Like we're, 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 we're kind of all in this together. And so share your stories with us. Send them to us on Twitter um, at, at SoHotPod or Instagram is also at SoHotPod. Um, and also help us genuinely if you can rate us or review us and subscribe and Ideally, just if you think it's useful, just tell your friends and pass it on, pass the link to the podcast on. That means that we feel that what we've been doing has been really worthwhile and helpful. 
And I would just say that in Damien's interview, we had a little joke about the fact that I was the only one that really used Twitter at that point. That is now not the case. We have a lovely So Hot Pod Twitter and Tom is becoming increasingly active on Twitter. I am. I'm really active on Twitter now. But a particular area of Twitter, which I've got really into, which is uh, Wildflower Twitter. Um, People on Wildflower Twitter are really interested in calling each other out or getting angry or nitpicking. They just share pictures of nice wildflowers and they tell each other what the names are, where they found them. And I found it enormously life enhancing. So thank you, Wildflower Twitter. But it, some people would say that's quite niche, but it is, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, we're all um, niche, aren't we? You know, but I'm very happy to have found this this happy Twitter place. Um, so thank you, Wildflower Twitter. Um, and also, as usual, thanks to Picture Zero uh, and Sony Fourth Floor, the production companies behind this show, uh, to our producer, Natalie Jameson, and to all you for listening. And for being in our community. Oh, yes. For being in the community of us two hype beasts <laughs> are you ever gonna let that go my my language faux pas i don't think it's a faux pas i love hype beast <laughs> I, I i maybe i'll even put that in my biog hype beast <laughs> oh stop it <laughs> see see you next time everybody thanks bye bye, bye. that's my mum my mum's bye bye <laughs>